if you understand wrath and you understand sin and, and ungodliness and unrighteousness, you will desperately look for the gospel. So how desperately do we need the gospel? John Piper turns to Romans 1.18 to answer that all-important question in this episode of Light and Truth. This sermon was originally preached at Bethlehem Baptist Church on August 30th, 1998. Father, I ask for your help as I undertake to open verse 18 for our hearts and minds and lives and church and city and the nations. I ask that this not be a wasted half hour and that you would come by your spirit and continue to give a kneeling posture to our hearts that we would bow before your authority and be changed by your holy revelation. So draw near now and give me an anointing for this work of preaching, I pray, and a special blessing of hearing upon your people. And should there be some here, as I am sure there are, who are unbelieving, I ask that they would be given the gift of careful listening and true understanding and right judgment and humble consideration and be drawn by the beauty of Christ and his gospel into saving faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to take a major turn now in our exposition of the book of Romans. The theme of the letter we've been on for six weeks in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, namely the power of God which saves believers by revealing to them month after month and year after year what they so desperately need every day, namely the gift of righteousness offered freely to faith. And in verse 18, he begins a section about sin and judgment and wrath that will take him all the way to chapter 3, verse 21. Verses 18 to the end of chapter 1 is the condition of the Gentile world. Chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8 is the condition of the Jewish world. And if you want to look at the summary of this unit in chapter 3, verse 9, it goes like this. What then? Are we Jews any better than they Gentiles? Answer, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, are all under sin. As it is written, here's the sweeping statement, there is none righteous, not even one. Now that's the point of chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 9. Sin and wrath and judgment and unrighteousness, the condition of humanity. And then in chapter 3, verse 21... After saying that the mouth of all the world has been stopped by this sin, he takes up 
the theme again from chapter 1, verse 17, and you read the words there in 321. But now, this is colossal now of the fullness of time when Jesus came. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And that's the same as chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. So between 117 and 321, you have this tour through the human heart. And it's not a pretty tour. And as I pondered the pace we've been going and the length of this unit, I thought that when I described it to you as a bleak place, some of you would groan thinking, oh, no, we're going to be a year in sin. We're going to be a year in wrath and judgment. So I've reflected on that as to whether that would be a bad thing. And uh, I have three answers to those of you who are worried about the oppressiveness of being a long time. I have any idea how long it's going to be. We'll see. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 320. Here's my encouragement to you. Number one, superficial diagnoses lead to false remedies and no cures. Superficial diagnoses lead to false remedies and no cures. Now, those are big words, kids. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you what it means. You're out playing, and it's a, a gravel alley. And you're running full tilt, and you fall, and your hands and your knees go right into the gravel. You ever done this? And you look at your hands, and especially the knee where the skin is so thin, and it's all bloody, and it's all dirty. It's got little rocks in there. And you go crying into the house, and mommy looks at this, or maybe daddy, if he's home, and they say, Oh, this is no problem. Let's just put a Band-Aid on that. Is that what they do? It's not what they do. Because there's gravel in this thing and dirt. And so they analyze it and they say, we have to wash it with a washcloth and soap and rub it to get it out. And that's bad news. That's oppressive. <laughs> Let's not spend too long here. But if they don't get this right, if they don't get the diagnosis right, you're going to get an infected knee with an ugly scar and maybe a fever. And so they get it right. They wash. You cry. Then goes the Band-Aid and you get well. Right diagnoses produce right cures. People who care about overcoming AIDS or cancer spend most of their time looking at AIDS and cancer. So my first encouragement is, however long we take, view it as a way of 
learning to diagnose the true condition of the human heart and the true nature of God in response to it. Here's my second encouragement. Profound understanding of sin and wrath will make you a wiser person, will give you a far deeper understanding of human nature, your own nature, and other people's nature. It will help you fight your own sin better and make you a wiser helper of other people dealing with their own human nature. If you don't know human nature, you'll be of very little use to humans. For a couple of years... I've been throwing out from time to time a goal that I have for the church in the word sage. Raise your hand if you've heard me use that word. Okay, not many. Remember it. So I've been throwing it out enough. I want us to become a church in which we nurture and cultivate sages, sagacious people. That is, people who are wise discerning, penetrating, people-loving, heart-knowing, God-exalting sages. I've put it like this. All of you 20, 30, 40-year-old people should think, and I'm thinking of women and men, I've said it especially to some of you women, some women wondered, what is my, what's my vision for my life spiritually as I grow older? Single, say, or married. And here's one vision, here's one way to articulate to yourself why you're on planet Earth. Think of becoming a 60-year-old sage to which... Hundreds of young women in their 20s and 30s and 40s will come streaming because you penetrate. You see things. You understand things. You grasp things. You know nature. You know God. You know the heart. You know sin. You know ugliness. You know beauty. You know wrath. You know holiness. You know mercy. You know things. You've been into the human heart and worked around there and understood it and untangled the sanctity and the sin of the human nature. And people read all over you the aroma of wisdom. And I just think the only reason that doesn't happen more often than it does is that we don't pray toward it, think toward it, work toward it, read toward it, listen toward it, act toward it, relate toward it. We just coast. So, long after I'm off the scene, may some people in this room right now be remembering, remember 20, 30 years ago when Pastor John Piper was here and he called us to be sages? There's one, and there's one, and there's one, and there's one. The men and women in their 60s and 70s and 80s to whom people go because every time they go, there's a fountain of life. The lips of wisdom are a fountain of life. Who drinks at your life? You are meant to be that. You are on the earth to become that way. And so many of you have low views of what you're going to be when you're older. Stop having low views. The Bible is written to make you wise unto salvation and not just your own.
All of which, on this second introductory point, is simply to tell you that to linger in the presence of an authoritative analysis of the human condition for some months is not an unhelpful thing to do if you want to produce sagacious, wise, penetrating, loving counselors to whom people go and get great help. Third encouragement. This one comes from the uh, structure of verse 18 itself. Verse 18 of chapter 1, which begins this whole section on sin, is given as a support for the gospel. You see the word for or because at the beginning of verse 18. If you have an NIV, you don't see it because they dropped it. Shame on them. Don't know why they do that sort of thing. But if you have an NASB or RSV or King James or one of the more literal renderings, you will see the word for or because at the beginning of verse 18. And it is absolutely essential for understanding the flow of the apostolic argument. The gospel is power because in it righteousness is revealed for you to have by faith. It's God's, not yours. So that you can have peace in your conscience, acceptance with God, hope for everlasting life. And you need that because the wrath of God is against your sin mightily. Get the connection? Which means that if you understand wrath and you understand sin and and ungodliness and unrighteousness, you will desperately look for the gospel. You will want a shield from that wrath more than you want anything in the world. And it's there in verse 17. We're coming back to it every Sunday. So if you wonder, are we going to leave the gospel behind and only talk about the problem for several months? The answer is no. Because the only reason Paul talks about the problem is to make you love the gospel. And if you try to do an end run around this section and jump boing, from 17 to 321, you won't love the gospel. That's being taught all over the world today in the name of Christianity. Let's just jump over this sin stuff. Let's just jump over this wrath stuff. This is not encouraging. It is not going to make people want to come back to my church on Sunday morning. I don't believe that, by the way. Visitors, whoever you are. Frankly, I think you'd like an interpretation of uh, death and suffering and moral degeneracy in our society. I think the world is kind of interested in where death come from. And is there any hope to overcome it? So I'm not worried about talking about sin and chasing anybody away. People leave for all kinds of reasons. And people come for the most strange reasons you can ever imagine. God brings you here this morning for this message. You're here for this message. And I pray that you'll be listening. So, number one, we want good cures Number two, we want wise people. And number three, 
We want to love the gospel. And for those three reasons, I'm not afraid to linger in this text that takes us very deep into our own misery and our own human nature and God's holiness and God's wrath. Now, let's begin the section, verse 18. Because or for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The first thing I want you to see in that verse is the two uses of the word unrighteousness. Twice, twice. Wrath is coming against our unrighteousness. And we are holding down or suppressing or hindering the truth in unrighteousness. Surely, Paul, in writing those two words, unrighteousness, means for us to connect them with the word righteousness in verse 17. And here that the reason we need a righteousness from God is because we are unrighteous. That's what he wants us to hear in these words. So don't miss that connection. In other words, you can see right off the bat that the bad news of verse 18 is meant to highlight the good news of verse 17. And if you don't get your condition as unrighteous, you won't love the awesome reckoning of verse 17. So don't run from these things. Don't run from the diagnosis. Next thing I want you to see is... The word revealed, which also parallels the word revealed in verse 17. And what's especially crucial to see about it is the present tense continuing action. Verse 17, I stressed very much, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year for the saints as they look to the gospel of God. The righteousness of God for them in Christ is being revealed to them and establishing them and strengthening them and producing more faith in them and preserving them so that they will escape wrath in the future. And now comes this frightening word in verse 18 that the same tense, same continuous action, same word revealed applies to wrath. For the wrath of God is being revealed. Not just will be revealed. That's true. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 5. There's a day of wrath coming. But this text says, it is now being revealed from heaven. It's coming down. It's being demonstrated. It's being manifested on the world. And mainly today, what I want to do is answer the question, how is it? How is the wrath of God now, today, being revealed? It is being revealed in the universal human experience of death. Death is an expression of God's wrath against ungodliness. And unrighteousness. Now, to show you where I get that, turn with me to chapter 5. We will linger a long time, I am sure, over verses 12 to 18 of chapter 5, but now we will simply get the main point. Look in the middle of verse 15 of chapter 5. By the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the one parent that we have, by the transgression of the one, 
The many died. Death was a response given by God to Adam's sin. So we in Adam sinned and fell and death spread then to all. Now look at the middle of verse 16 to see how this death is described. For on the one hand, the judgment, underline that word, arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So there you have two words describing death, judgment and condemnation. So death is not some kind of mere physical experience because cells wear out. Death is judgment. Death is condemnation. Now look at verse 18 in the middle. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So three times, death is called a judgment or a condemnation or a response to sin. Another word for that is wrath. Death is an expression or a manifestation of the anger and the wrath of God against sin in the world. This is Light and Truth, God-centered preaching to help you see Christ clearly and treasure Him truly. I'm your host, Dan Kruver. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, John Piper continues our series titled, Our Gospel Need. I hope you'll join us. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.